Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Shoman Katoshu Dai Yonju Roksoku Joshu Muji Joshu Chinamini Soto Kushinikaite Busho Ariamata Nasha Suiwak Mu So Ibak Isai Sujomino Busho Ari Kushini Nanto Stika Kaite Nasha Suiwak彼に合宿しょうのあるあるがためなり Entangling Vines, Case 46, Joshu's Mu. A monk asked Joshu Jushin, Does the dog have Buddha nature? Joshu answered, The monk replied, All sentient beings have Buddha nature. Why would the dog not have it? Joshu said, because it has karmic consciousness. Another monk asked, Does a dog have Buddha nature? Joshu answered, The monk replied, If it has, why then is it still stuffed into a bag of skin? Because though it knows, it deliberately transgresses, said Joshu. Welcome to part two of our mini-series. It's not a rerun, but you will find yourself returning to Mu over and over again. It is very, very sticky. Very difficult to get rid of something that says, no, not. You want to get rid of me? Mu. <laughs> no chance. No chance whatsoever. So today, I will deliver the promised goods of the Red Koan in terms of looking at the text that we have. And you might feel it is a little different today because we are five days into this wonderful Angya pilgrimage, mountain hike, or whatever we would call it together, five days together, really makes a significant difference. And just now we can't hear the machine anymore. It was interesting to hear a machine suddenly in this wonderful silence we have here. <laughs> and that's just what it points to what we are 
experiencing here and also with this koan move. We have to have these kind of stark contrasts at times to actually notice what is going on. Everything in this practice that is formal, not everything, but most of it is set up in a way that we can bump into it. We offend. It is made so that we offend by design. It's all, it's, it's, it is a spiritual minefield. <laughs> the rules also are like that. And if you know the rules, by the time it is time for you to step onto one of the minds, they have changed. And that is part of the core of the matter, that there is nothing to rely on. I very well remember that the monks at Mount Baldi Zen Center, they wanted once and for all pin down all the rules. And of course, uh, the abbot said, oh, um, good idea. <laughs> A book was compiled. Much paper went into it. Many questions from many different people, different opinions, but then everything was agreed to and was presented to the master who accepted it. Oh, now rules here. <laughs> rules here now, all settled. Next morning everything changed. That's how it is. You think you have it right, you get yelled at. You think you have it wrong, nothing happens. So I started saying that I would like this to be a family affair. Looking at this Mukhoan and the last thing that I had time to read to you was an excerpt by uh, Yoga Kutsu Soen, uh, Soen Shaku, who appeared in 1893 at the World Fair in Chicago, where they had this big uh, Congress of the World's Religions, and where he spoke through his translator, Diti Suzuki. And it is interesting to note that there were some Indian folks there too. Uh, and of course, when they spoke, they spoke directly, they spoke English. People understood them. Uh, and there was this Japanese guy who had to speak through a translator. And it's interesting to look at history that that made a difference in terms of the uptake of the teachings of the various Indian teachers who were there compared or in opposition to what happened here with uh, the Zen teachings. Language matters. And the next family member I want to point to is one who came over here and struggled mightily with everything from the most basic things as food and shelter to being exposed to a language that is so foreign to somebody who grew up in Japan. 
English is a terrible language. I'm sorry to have to say that. It's very difficult. People always say German is so bad. But really, English, English is very difficult. And if, if this person, who we know as Chodoan, Yogen, Senzaki, we heard about his very important English Bodhisattva Kangetsu in Roshi's Teisho. She helped him with English and so she probably worked on this and actually this comes from a book that Roshi herself had edited some time ago. And it talks about the instance of the first couple of lines here which appear in the Mumonkan, the gateless gate, as case one. There it's just a little bit different, Joshu Osho, it says here there's no Osho, Jinamini Soto, and that's all the same, and he says Mu, and that's it. But it's also a different title. There it's called Joshu Kushi, the Joshu's puppy dog. Here it is Joshu's Mu character. So here's Nyogen Senzaki. Bodhisattvas. The first koan in the gateless gate is Joshu's dog. This koan is usually the first one given to the Zen student. Many masters in China and Japan entered Zen through this gate. Do not think that it is easy just because it is the first. A koan is the thesis of the postgraduate course in Buddhism. Those who have studied the teachings for 20 years may consider themselves scholars of Buddhism. But until they pass through this gate of Joshu's dog, they will remain strangers outside the door of Buddha Dharma. Each koan is the key of emancipation. Once you are freed from your fetters, you do not need the key anymore. A stanza from the Shodoka, the Song of Realization, goes like this. The wonderful power of emancipation. It is applied in countless ways, in limitless ways. One should make four kinds of fairings for this power. If you want to pay for it, a million gold pieces are not enough. If you sacrifice everything you have, it cannot cover your debts. Only a few words from your realization are payment in full, even for the debts of the remote past. Yogen Sinzaki continues, you can get this power of emancipation when you pass Joshu's dog. Your answer to this koan will be your payment in full, even for the debts of the remote past. The great Chinese master Joshu always spoke his Zen, using a few choice words instead of hitting or shaking his students as other teachers did. 
I know that students who cling to worldly sentiments do not like the rough manner of, of Zen. They should meet our Joshu first and study his simplest word, Mu. Each sentient being has Buddha nature. This dog must have one. But before you conceptualize about such things and nonsense, influenced by the ideas of the soul in Christianity, Joshua will say, No! Get out! Then you may think of the idea as manifestation. Fine word. So you think of the manifestation of Buddha nature as a dog. Before you can express such nonsense, nonsense Joshua will say, no. You're clinging to a, a ghost of Brahman. Get out. Whatever you say is just the shadow of your conceptual thinking. Whatever you conceive of is a figment of your imagination. Now tell me, has a dog Buddha nature or not? Why did Joshu say Mu? This is Nyogen Senzaki. Hmm. So does the dog have Buddha nature or not? Is there any evidence for that? No? There is not a, a, a dog breed of, of dogs with Buddha nature and dogs without Buddha nature? Is there other evidence? Don't we like the scriptures? Is there scriptorial evidence? Does it say somewhere all sentient beings have Buddha nature, even dogs? Have we ever chanted anything like that? Sentient beings are fundamentally Buddhas. It is like ice and water. Apart from water, no ice can exist. Outside sentient beings, where do we find the Buddhas? We chant it all the time. Do we have any doubt about it? No, no, nobody. Nobody wants to join that monk? So why did he ask then? And we have to also consider, this is China, long, long time ago. You didn't get on a train and go somewhere just like that. Pilgrimage, yes, certainly. Fraught with unexpected occurrences. First of all, how did this monk hear about Joshu? He must have. He sought him out. 
Because remember, Joshua, he did not actually go on his pilgrimage before the age of 60. And then he wandered around for 20 years, not to be found in any specific place until he started that, to be the abbot at the monastery. So that already is a question. The monk came all this way. He went, or she went, they went through hardships to find that legendary person whom he would ask this question, not in a flippant way, but completely earnestly. It really must have bothered him, her, them. Does it bother you? Any question like that? Maybe not the dog, but anything that is bothersome of the same kind of quality? Hmm? What's for dinner? <laughs> oh, no, no, that, that, that doesn't work. But any other questions? What is this? Who am I? Those are questions, I suppose, that would qualify. And we all must have some sort of a question like that, or the intuition that there is one inside of us that wants to be explored. Otherwise, you wouldn't come here. We wouldn't be here. As you might have noticed, this is not a spa. This is not a vacation. Some of us here take vacation to come here. Don't tell your co-workers what you're doing. <laughs> they might treat you in a different way when they find out. Or tell them if you want to shock them. But these questions, they are really, really like a chemical process that creates energy that makes us restless to bring it to some kind of completion. So here he comes with this earnest question. It's not a scholarly question because that he could have asked any of the masters who can read the scriptures. Does a dog have Buddha does, does nature? Mm -hmm. Yeah, here, it says here, right here. Oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> but that's not how it went for him. And did Joshua answer scholarly? No, because he wasn't a scholar. And the monk did not seek him out for his scholarly prowess of the sutras, but for his immediacy of being able to connect with his feet firmly grounded and connecting with the question. So there is something in here that has received a name in this Rinzai Zen practice. And I already chanted the first lines of 
Haku in Zenji's Zazen Wasan. And so here is what Hakuin wrote about this. Well, I'll give you a chance to move first. Hakuin Ikakuzenji wrote, The Master Hoen of Mount Goso, Goso Hoen Zenji, has said in a verse, the exposed sword of Joshu gleams brilliantly like cold frost. If someone tries to ask about it, their body will at once be cut in two. Hakuin goes on. To all intents and purposes, the study of Zen makes as its essential the resolution of the ball of doubt, the great doubt, Dai Gidan. That is why it is said, at the bottom of great doubt lies great awakening. If you doubt fully, you will awaken fully. Another ancient master has said, if you don't doubt the koans, you suffer a grave disease. Hakuin. If those who study Zen are able to make the great doubt appear before them, a hundred out of a hundred, a thousand out of a thousand will, without fail, attain awakening. When a person faces the great doubt, before them, there is in all directions only a vast and empty land without birth and without death, like a huge plain of ice extending 10,000 miles, as though seeded within a vase of lapis lazuli, surrounded by absolute purity, without his senses, they sit and forget to stand, stand and forget to sit. Within their heart, there is not the slightest thought or emotion, only the single word, Mo. It is just as though he were standing in complete emptiness. At this time, no fears arise, no thoughts creep in, and when they advance, single-mindedly, without retrogression, suddenly it will be as though a sheet of ice were broken or a jade tower had fallen. They will experience a great joy, one that never in 40 years has they, have they seen or heard. At this time, birth, death, and nirvana will be likely yesterday's dream, like the bubbles in the seas of the 3,000 worlds, like the enlightened status of all the wise humans and sages. This is known as the time of the great penetration of wondrous awakening, the state where the ah! is shouted. 
It cannot be handed down. It cannot be explained. It is just like knowing for yourself by drinking whether the water is hot or cold. The ten directions melt before your eyes. The three periods and penetrated in an instant of thought. What joy is there in the realms of humans in heaven that one could compare with this? This power can be obtained in the space of three to five days if the student will advance determinately. You may ask how one can make this great doubt appear. Do not favor a quiet place. Do not shun a busy place, but always set in the area below the navel, Joshu's Mo. Then asking what principle this Mu contains. If you discard all emotions, concepts and thoughts and investigate it single-mindedly, there is no one before whom the great doubt will not appear. When you call forth this great doubt before you in its pure and uninvolved form, you may undergo an unpleasant and strange reaction. However, you must accept the fact, the realization of so felicitous, I can't even read that, the realization so felicitous a thing as the great matter, the trampling of the multi-tiered gate of birth and death that has come down through endless kalpas, the breaking through of the inner understanding of the basic awakening of all the tathagatas of the ten directions must involve a certain amount of suffering. When you come to think about it, those who have investigated the Mu Koan brought before themselves the great doubt, experienced the great death and attained the great joy are countless in number of those who called the Buddha's name and gained a small measure of benefit from it. I have heard of no more than two or three. The abbot of Eshinin has called it the benefits of wisdom and the power of faith in the mind. If you investigate the Mu or the three pounds of flax or some other koan to obtain true reality in your own body should take from two or three months to a year or a year and a half. Well, clearly, I at least have failed. I don't know about you. This is not my day three in this. Yes, there is suffering. It might not seem that way, but uh, even the people who sit there and don't move, it still hurts. And Hakuin really liked to tell people that it takes so and so long. The, short, the shortest time is one sitting, right? In, this, in the Song of Zazen, that, that's the, the shortest I, we have found, yeah? Uh, he, he allows a year and a half. How generous. <laughs> so, but it means it takes a long time. He's trying, 
it's almost a sales pitch, you know. Uh, this product is so much better. It will clean your karma in a single sitting. You don't even need to flush. <laughs> but what he really liked to, what I want to take from here is this single-minded. And let's never forget that Hakuin always had the simple-minded people in mind too. This was not written for those who have studied Buddhism for 20 years and now are waiting for a thesis and want to put some kind of silly hat on and call themselves a whatever, PhD in Buddhist studies. <laughs> it has its place. But it is not, as Nyogen Senzaki said, it's in Buddhism, not in Buddha Dharma. Very big distinction. He tells us what it will do for us, and he warns us very clearly, this is not easy. Single-mindedly. So when you come to Rohatsu, and you probably all will, you will hear Hakuine Kaku's uh, exhortations for Rohatsu. There's one story about one such simple fellow who sits in the bathhouse. I won't tell you more. You will have to appear to hear it in its fullness. Don't we all wish we could be that single-minded? Well, stop wishing. <laughs> Do it. This is the perfect place, the perfect time. Actually, it is the only place and the only time we have to do any of this. What are we waiting for? Maybe our doubt is not big enough. Big enough to bring us here. So also great doubt is to be cultivated. It might be first medium doubt. <laughs> but we can grow it. We can grow it. And at first it is attached to some kind of indistinct feeling. Wow. But it becomes clearer and clearer what is behind all of this while we do this practice over and over again. This is the state in which this monk appears here in front of Joshu. Is he really talking about a dog? Maybe these are the words he could find to express his question. So Joshu answered Mu. We don't have to say much about it, even though mu means no, not being. This is not a dualistic question that is being asked here. This is not about have or have not. <clears throat> this is about the problem of having or not having. And having that problem 
of not having a solution for it, of being torn between existence and non-existence. It becomes a little clearer when we look at uh, what's following after it. It continues, now we actually enter somewhat the scholarly realm because the monk said then, uh, because that was not the answer he expected. And he was ob obviously not ready to receive Mu as what it is. His brain chimed in. All sentient beings have Buddha nature. Why would a dog not have it? Joshu said, because it has karmic consciousness. And this is the spot where Joshu starts handing out fake money. And if you accept it, you can go and spend it and you'll be arrested. <laughs> the rabbit hole opens. It is very narrow. It's very dark in there. It's not pleasant to get in. And it's almost impossible to get out. The second half, though, speaks about another monk who equally earnestly asked the same question. But Joshua answered differently. Joshua said, Ooh, which means affirmative, have, yes. This monk clearly had thought about it in various ways already because he replied, well, if it has, why then is it still stuffed into a bag of skin? What stands behind that is the monk thinking, okay, if that dog has Buddha nature, of course I have Buddha nature. I have Buddha nature. Why am I caught in this bag of skin? I have to put something in every day. I have to empty it every day. I have to lie it down and, and, and all that stuff, this bag of skin. Clearly he had some idea that Buddha nature would make all of that not necessary. There are no reports in the scriptures from the Buddha forward to this day that any of the venerable teachers, male, female, in those 2,500 years has reached the stage that they don't go to the bathroom. So that's not what Buddha nature is about. But clearly this monk had some kind of hope or a doubt again. Well, if it's Buddha nature and I'm still in this bag of skin, what am I doing wrong? Joshua answered, because though it knows, it deliberately transgresses. So before we go into that, let's just look at the practical application. What do we do with a koan like this? 
there it is long, especially in, in this kind of constellation with two questioners, two questions each, four answers. The only lucky being there is the dog. There's the idea of a very specific part of a koan that is kind of the core of it. And in, in Japanese it's called wato, the word head. In this koan, guess what this word is? Any idea, anyone? Dog, dog, no, no, no. is it dog, no, is it joshu, no. Transgress? <laughs> yeah, transgress. <laughs> of course it is Mu. It is Mu. Mu is that Wato. So what do we do with it? What can we do with it? There are many different ways that one can approach this. First of all, do we have to know what it means? Mu. There are some schools here in the United States or in the Western English-speaking realm that don't like to use mu, and they use no. Some use wu, the Chinese. But from my point of view, mu works fine. But it is this one word, the wato, that we look at. Repeating it. Over and over again. It is like introducing a virus into your consciousness operating system. It is introduced and it will mess with it. It is different from a computer virus by the fact that it, do it doesn't have a program in it. There is not something specific that will happen. It's more unpredictable. It will delete stuff. <laughs> Suddenly you don't know something, you feel completely lost. And Sometimes it just changes things. Unpredictable. Perception might change. And the word virus comes because it copies itself over and over again. By repeating it, by getting into it, we could do it on the exhalation. Completely stay on that move until the very end. Or when we get up and we walk with every step, and it takes on a life of its own. It takes on this life of its own, fed by the energy of our great question that we already carry within us.
The other characteristic that Mu also has is the characteristic of uh, nail fungus. Once you have it, you can never get rid of it. It stays, it stays, it stays. Even if it seems to be clear, you are engaged in something where you don't repeat more as a word and because there's no room for it. But what are you actually doing? That what stands behind the word. Complete in every aspect of presence, of experience, of engagement, of clarity. No doubt, no fear, no hesitation, nothing. This is where it leads to. It even gets rid of itself as a tool. And we should not get stuck to it as a tool. It's not a mechanical repetition. It's not a mechanical parrot. We make relationship with that parrot. You know what the parrot's name is? Joshu. Hey, Joshu. Do I have Buddha nature today? So making relationship, not just with that, but what it introduces us to is to that opening to make relationship with everything that unfolds in front of us, within us, without us, behind, anywhere. That's why the repetition is so important. That's one of the approaches to do. There's another way to do it in action. And you all have participated in it. After the Enmei Juku Kanongyo, we shout Mu. And if it's really working, then Mu shouts us. And what we find through that is there are so, so many different flavors of it. There is this fundamental move, the foundational pitch of move that goes through everything. It used to be that in the Zendo here, at times, chanting would start to help the energy of the sitters. And everybody would, would just chant.
goosebumps. This is what it means to be alive. And this is one of the gates to it. The shouting in the Sangha meadow is another gate. There is this question in us, well, do I have Buddha nature? Am I worthy? There's this doubt in ourselves. Can I realize this? Will I make it through this session? Will I make it in life? All those questions. And shouting Mu is a wonderful exercise for that because it helps us brush aside any question of such matter. You don't have to be afraid. The trees will not mind. They have listened to many, many moves. And they look forward. Each leaf of the deciduous trees is an ear to listen to you more and receive it without judgment and asking you to do the same, to throw yourself fully into that shout. And by no measure judge it. Is it long enough? This is not a measuring contest. Is it to this? Is it not enough that? It is meant to be just the way it is. And in the morning when we do it here together, you hear there are different ways of doing it. There is no right way. There is no wrong way. There is no objective way. There's just the one way when you move. So learning and exploring these various flavors of Mu is really important. Because then Mu turns into not a tool, but it has to become the connective tissue between those parts of our lives that we would call disjunct. There's this compartment and that compartment. But Mu extends through all these compartments. And we carry it into all of those compartments. We have to. If we stand here or we stand in front of uh, some work affair and have to speak, no difference. Just how we express ourselves might be different. If it is a budget hearing and you go, people wouldn't be happy with you. But if you have shouted in Sangha Meadow, you can stand there and say, I have to tell you we are losing our shirt. Well, it takes guts to do that. But I know what we can do.
using Mu everywhere, not being caught by Mu as an object, as a tool, and even less as a goal. It is not a goal. Mu cannot be reached. U cannot be reached either. The question of duality cannot be answered with duality tools and means. And there are some very important considerations here. When we think about duality, and we have to also transform our thinking, and Mu helps with that as well. We are accustomed to think that duality can only be transcended if the fixated position of reference of a self is removed. Ah, beautiful, isn't it? Transcended, transformed, and we use the language. Removal, transcending, transformation. And by using this words, these words, we just throw around more two-dimensional stuff that seems to fit a little better, but in the end, it's two-dimensional garbage. I have shared with you, some of you in, in, in Doksan, about uh, Nishida Kitaro. Nishida Kitaro, the founder of the Kyoto School of Philosophy. He once, oh, we have a little visitor here. He once uh, had some students of philosophy that came to see him. And he explained to them, he had to explain to them, what is the difference in understanding between the self in, in Zen, in Buddhism, and in Western philosophy? These were philosophy students, and they were as uh, pesky as this little critter here. I don't want to hurt him. And Nishida Kitaro didn't want to hurt, him, hurt them either. So he had to explain to them what about the self and consciousness. And this is a very important thing to consider. In Western thinking, there's the thinking, okay, there's the self, and out of it comes consciousness. And he explained to them that in Buddhism, it's the other way around. There is consciousness out of which self-consciousness arises. It's a very, very, very different way. Same with dualism and with non-duality. Transcending duality. Transcending is like going beyond something that's outside of. But it is the other way around again. So thinking that non-duality transcends duality and having the idea of something higher or beyond is not helpful. Non-duality is like consciousness, it is like Mu, the basis out of which duality arises.
seeking so far away, right? It is right here at hand. It is the basis of all our experience of everything that arises and disappears. Just our mind function creates this duality of have and have not. And it's troublesome on a fundamental level. So troublesome that this monk made it all across China. So troublesome that you came here and you and you and you, everybody came here. So troublesome. So please try to appreciate this pointer that in the same way the Buddha nature, consciousness, non-duality is an always present unfolding activity. There's nothing we are looking for. Everything we are seeing is coming out of this. The dog, Joshu, the monk. Even the pain when we sit comes out of that. And there we can appreciate what duality does. I'm sure you have noticed that the moment you start objectifying that pain. Ah! It is pain. We put the pain sticker on it. Before it was just a sensation. As soon as the sticker unpleasant is added to it, it's an unpleasant sensation. We don't like that. It also teaches us, and I'm repeating myself, that non-duality doesn't mean there is not light and dark. There is not hot and cold. That's another of those ideas that we carry with us. Oh, when I realize Mu, there will be no hot, no cold. Everything will be just hunky-dory. Beautiful. I'm going to bliss out the rest of my life. That's not what it means. Awakening to non-duality means, well, maybe we say the light goes on, but there's no guarantee that you will like what you see. <laughs> Roshi is laughing. <laughs> and, and just you wait. <laughs> it's a wonderful to have the light on. It is wonderful. When it's dark, it's dark. That's non-duality. When it's dark and we start thinking, oh, I really want it to be light. That is when duality cuts everything into two. When it's light and we are afraid of the dark, the sword of duality has arisen from non-duality. And that arising comes with energetic reactions that we experience as suffering. 
by just not engaging, as we read on the first day, in unfaith in mind, in clinging to preferences of mu, of no, of u, of yes. We are not getting to some place that wasn't there before. We are just not making those efforts, those waves that rise out of that, always embracing non-duality in which we were born. This is what Joshua is about. Very, very down to earth. You don't have to explain to me why you are here. You are here. Or as we heard yesterday, you are Echo. So, bring your hearts into that question and it will forget itself. And maybe one day you actually remember something that happened to you a long time ago that you had not realized until you sat down here and do Zazen because you didn't have any kind of inkling what that would have been. When I was much, much younger, I had the question, who am I? And it just, I, I could not let it go. I wasn't sure if I should talk to somebody. But at that time, of course, there were not only stigma and who, who wanted to go and see a psychiatrist or something like that. But it would not go away, it would not go away. And one day I was late. I didn't drive. I didn't start driving until I was way in my 30s. So I had a bike. And I made my way to that place where I had to go. It was hot. It was uphill. It, it was exhausting. And with every stepping into the pedals, oh, I'm Well, I didn't only get there. It can be disorienting, but if we don't know what, what it means to have an experience of falling out of that, it can be treacherous. That's why I so very much appreciate the setup of a practice, of a tradition that has been helping everybody work on these liberating ways of 
living and be there as a, not only a safety net, but also as safe arms to be embraced when this seeing comes and overwhelms one. But what I learned from that, it is not, you don't stumble on it. When Hokuto Sensei said yesterday, these unexpected things happen to people who have years and years and years of that fundamental burning question. And then there's the right pebble in the way, the right stone the right bell rings. But the cultivation of that great doubt, of the openness, of the dedication to that single-minded questioning is really, really important. Coming to an understanding of who, what, how we are, is not a side hassle that we can have. This, as Hakuin said, if you put yourselves fully into it, you can fall fully out of it. There is no layaway policy here. It is full payment. So let's use these remaining few moments of our lives, and I'm not speaking about the session of our lives that might just end precipitously at any moment. This is really You want to live? This is the way to do it. And it's not the way to get there because there is no there, there. Does a dog have Buddha nature? Even he believes it now. He's still here, the little guy. Throw yourselves into it. Make it this connective tissue between what is happening because what you give to it and anything short of giving yourselves fully without judgment, without restraint, without self-consciousness. And we all will be richer for it, as we are richer through your presence. Let's do this together. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. 
If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.